Today on the show, we discuss Kanye West's celebrity conversions and the prodigal son, and then we wrap things up with five tips for dealing with skeptics. My name's Hayden Clark, and this is Help Me Believe. It's not uncommon to hear about a celebrity in our culture here in America who has had a road to Damascus experience and placed their faith in Jesus. Plenty of examples exist out there, but none is more popular today than that of the conversion of Kanye West. I don't keep up that much with pop culture, Kanye West, or the Kardashians for that matter, um, but a family member of mine actually told me that Kanye has always been a Christian and that he's brought up his faith in uh, previous albums uh, beforehand. Uh, whether or not that's true, I don't actually know, but uh, whether or not he has recently converted or has experienced some sort of revival, uh, something has definitely happened in Kanye's life, and it's got people talking. So this even reached my attention, which again, I don't keep up that much with pop culture, and I listened to Kanye's new album, Jesus is King, and I was pleasantly surprised by what uh, sounded like sincerity and the passion of a true believer. Now, I don't know why this was a pleasant surprise to me, as I said. I suppose I view Kanye based on his uh, older albums and that sort of thing, which by his own admission would be anything but Christ-exalting. Also, I watched some of his recent interviews about this new album that he's released, and it seems to me that he's publicly proclaiming his faith, and he's really standing firm on the gospel. At least that's what it looks like to me, and so I didn't have any problem at first um, believing that uh, Kanye is truly converted or is truly a believer in Jesus now, um, and I couldn't help but hear uh, some biblical orthodoxy in some of the things that he was saying. Of course, there's some other things out there that people are concerned about, and that's kind Kind of what I want to address today. This concern that people have, is Kanye truly a believer? Has he really put his faith in Jesus? Is he being uh, serious about this? Now, obviously, I don't know for certain about anybody's motives. I don't know if you are truly a believer or even some of my close friends or even my pastor or whoever, and you don't know that about me. For all you know, I'm just in this for the money. Of course, I don't make any hardly make any money doing this, and that's not why I do it, but you don't know that. It could be I could just have the sole passion to make the YouTube channel and whatever and start a podcast and stuff because I think that I'm going to get rich, even though <clears throat> I would be sadly mistaken. That could be my true motive for all you know because you don't know what's going on inside my mind, inside my heart, that sort of thing. And so let me just start by saying, I do not know Kanye West's motives, and neither do you. You don't know anybody's motives, and neither do I. But what I do know is God's word. And I think the parable of the prodigal son is a good example for us to listen to and learn from when it comes to this question about, is so-and-so serious about their faith, especially when it comes to these celebrity conversions like Kanye West. Now, if you're a Christian, I'm sure you're familiar with the parable of the prodigal son. It's one we all we often hear referenced, especially whenever somebody comes back to the faith, or when somebody was very wayward and you know living extremely sinful, or whatever you want to think of it. You know the cliches, and then they come to follow Jesus. You know they have a road to Damascus experience, that sort of thing. And we think about the prodigal or the prodigal son, the parable of the prodigal son, and we think about how far that son went away and then came back, and we think about how. God's love is, that nobody is beyond his redemption, and that's usually the application of that parable. And I'm not saying that that is a wrong application. However, textually and contextually, if you look at that chapter and those verses, you will find that that is not the main point of the parable. 
So real quickly, let's go through the parable. It goes basically something like this. There was a father who had two sons. The youngest son comes to the father and asks for his inheritance ahead of time. And so pause right there because at this time and place that Jesus is speaking, uh, asking for your inheritance ahead of time would basically be like telling your father, you are no use to me alive. I wish you were dead, so just give me my money now and we can go our separate ways, as if the money were owed to the son. Now, in the parable, Jesus is telling the father obliges, and he gives the inheritance to the son uh, ahead of time, before he actually dies, obviously. And um, this really just shows us the length that parents will go to uh, for their children's happiness and that sort of that sort of thing. But So the son takes the money, and he squanders it on loose living, we'll just say that. Imagine he goes to Las Vegas or somewhere like that, and he blows it on strippers and drugs and gambling and that sort of thing. That's what he does with his father's inheritance, again, which he got before he actually died. And so when the wells run dry, he's out of money and that sort of stuff, and the fun's over, the son is left with nothing. So what is he to do? He ends up selling himself as a hired hand to a farmer, so says the parable. And starving, he resorts to eating with the pigs. He's eating out of the pig trough. He's eating God knows what. And it's there, face down in whatever pigs eat, that he comes to his senses. And he decides to return home and beg for his father's forgiveness. Now, before he can even reach the house, Jesus says that the father runs out to greet him. And he doesn't uh, meet him with anger and I told you so's and that sort of thing. He welcomes him home with a loving embrace. It's, it's very shocking how loving the father is. And not only this, but the father orders uh, all of his uh, servants and, the, and people to kill the fatted calf and prepare a big party he's going to throw for his wayward son the, who has now returned. So what a story that is, and, and and really it is an analogy to the grace and the love that God does have for sinners, and it's, it's truly re- remarkable. In fact, it's scandalous, and there's only one problem. I've left out the major point. So a wise man once said that um, a text without a context is simply a pretext, and if you don't take a text in its context, you can pretty much make it say anything you want. Now, you may be legitimate to the context without knowing it, but that would only be by happenstance. And the context of Jesus' parable is this. Jesus' enemies at the time, the Pharisees, who were the religious leaders of the day, self-righteous, hypocritical, those people that Jesus often came in conflict with, they were complaining that a righteous man such as Jesus would hang out with notorious sinners all the day long, which he did. How could he defile himself in such a way? Uh, The Pharisees were far too holy, parentheses on holy, to do such things. Didn't Jesus know any better? Why was he hanging out with sinners? Now, this complaining of the Pharisees prompted Jesus into a series of parables, uh, of which the the parable of the prodigal son is just one. There's many other parables there in that text. And in each parable, something goes missing or lost that is then found. And then, this is key, there is rejoicing about what was lost being found. Now, at the end of this parable of the prodigal son, which I've left out till this point, we find the eldest son, who's often forgotten. All the attention is always given to the youngest son, who was wayward and lost, and he spent all his father's money and then came back, and the father forgave him, and in fact, um, clothed him with his own robes and things like that, and threw a big party. But we often forget about the oldest son, who is as far as I can tell, the main character of this story, and I'll show you why. 
The oldest son goes to the father, and he's indignant whenever he hears that he has welcomed his younger brother home, who squandered all of his money. The older brother has never done such things. He's always been loyal to his father. He's always obeyed his father. He's always done what his father asked him to do. And he didn't squander any of his money, obviously. And so he's expecting the youngest son to be punished and his father to be angry with him and stuff like that. But lo and behold, his father welcomes him home. And not only that, but he kills the fatted calf and throws a party, something he's never done for the oldest son, who's again, has always been loyal. So let me ask you something. Does the oldest son sound like anybody else outside the parables? Yes. He sounds like the Pharisees who started this whole thing. Remember that Jesus launched into the parables after hearing the Pharisees complain that he was hanging out with sinners. So given the context in which Jesus was telling this parable, it becomes clear that the story is actually about the oldest brother more so than it is the youngest, or the father for that matter. The whole point was that the inheritance is the father's to give. Who was the oldest son to complain about him showing grace to the youngest son, even though the youngest son had squandered his inheritance? The correct response was to rejoice, again, rejoice, for what had been lost was now found. So, is Kanye West serious about following Jesus? We don't know his motives. You surely don't know his motives. I surely don't know his motives. And I don't know anybody's motives. But when I hear somebody proclaim that Jesus is King, that Jesus is Lord publicly, and there's this big to-do about it, I rejoice for God is being glorified. Jesus is, is being glorified. The gospel is spreading people. Jesus is getting all the attention and things like that. And so I, I choose to rejoice because I don't know Kanye West's motives and I'm far more concerned about my own motives. I don't want to be caught a Pharisee when I should be rejoicing. And I hope you feel the same way. Next, I want to give you five tips for talking with skeptics. But first, I want to thank you. I want to say thank you to our patron supporters. Thank you for all your support. Uh, it's because of what you do that uh, I get to create free material like this and put it out there on the internet to hopefully spread and defend the truth of Christianity uh, to those who are seeking the truth and, and and for believers who want a better understanding of their faith. So thank you to our patron supporters. If you're listening or watching, you too can become a patron supporter by following the link uh, in the description below, uh, labeled support, help me believe, and just go over to our Patreon page and become a supporter over there. Uh, with that, you get a access to bonus material such as the bonus segment of the interviews that we do. We do a lot of interviews on the podcast. Uh, by the way, I haven't done any the last couple of weeks. It's been kind of hard to get that lined up with the holidays, but I've got some scheduled and a lot of people, uh, potential ones ready for the first of the year. And so we're going to have another good round of interviews at the beginning of the year. It's kind of crazy. All the ones that we had this year uh, in 2019, it really surprised me who all I was able to get to come on. So I hope you've enjoyed those. And again, you can get access to the bonus segment by following the Patreon link in the description below and become a, becoming a supporter. Talking with somebody who is objecting to your Christian beliefs can be quite intimidating. Uh, it's even it's intimidating for me, and I'm somebody who you know has the podcast and things like that. So it comes across as if anyone should be confident, it should be me. But I get intimidated as well. It's something that we all experience, and in fact, it's not unique to Christians alone. Skeptics get intimidated by Christians, whether they want to admit it or not. Other people of other faiths get intimidated. It's uh, political. Uh, pundits and things like that get intimidated. Anytime somebody objects to you, it can kind of be uncomfortable. It's like, oh, now I got to go on the defense and prove myself or I'm going to look like a fool, right? That's kind of what we all initially feel in that situation. Now, in my experience, which is limited, but uh, having read some books on the subject and things, I've found some useful tips for how to deal with such situations that I find useful, and I think you uh, will too. 
Now, without sounding arrogant, I find myself—I flatter myself, at least as someone who reads quite a bit about apologetics, philosophy, New Testament studies, that sort of stuff, and so uh, maybe I know my stuff, maybe I don't, but um, I find that these tips will actually help anybody, whether you know a whole lot, if you're a Christian that hasn't read up on the subjects that much. Um, following these tips, I think, will, will help just about anybody when being engaged by a skeptic, someone who's objecting to your faith. So I hope you find them uh, useful. I think you will. Number one, and I can't stress this enough, is to remember that you are not Superman, all right? It's not as if all of Christendom is resting on your shoulders, like as if you don't answer this objection, then Christianity is just going to disappear from the face of the earth. That's not going to happen, and actually, and we all tend to feel this way, but doing so is actually kind of narcissistic, as if to think that everything rests on your shoulders. It doesn't, obviously. For 2,000 years, the gospel message, Christianity, has spread all over the globe and become the most popular religion by far in the whole world, and it's not going to be undone by one person objecting to you and you not knowing what to say. What, even if that conversation were public, it did. It's, it's not the end of the world. So the first thing to do is just relax and remember that even if you completely blunder this, everything's going to be okay. The second thing that I would recommend you do is ask the first question. There's no question that's as important as the first question. And the first question is this. If Christianity were true and you could know it with 100% certainty, would you become a Christian? That's the first question you should definitely ask anybody that objects to you. Even if they object to you in the form of a question, you should answer them with this question. Now, it might seem silly at first, right? Why would you ask this question? Obviously, any level-minded person would follow the truth wherever it leads. But this is not so. And I was just in a dialogue just recently with a well-known YouTube atheist, and I asked him if Christianity were true, um, if you could know it with the kind of certainty that you would want, would you uh, then become a follower of Jesus? Would you place your faith in him? And he, he said, absolutely not. That he, if you say, to quote him, he said, if Christianity were true, I would have to reject it. And in fairness, he said, he said this because he said that he did, just didn't want to live forever, right? I don't want to live forever. Christianity entails that I will live forever. Um, so if the alternative was annihilationism, then he would have chosen annihilationism. And he said that if the alternative were eternal hell, then, well, then he might reconsider it. But this first question really highlights for you who you're talking to. Are you talking to someone who honestly is seeking truth and will follow it wherever it leads? Or are you following somebody or, or, or are you talking to somebody who is going to reject Christianity, even if they come to intellectually believe that it's actually true, that it's actually true that God exists, it's actually true that Jesus rose from the dead, but I'm still going to reject him. If you're, talking to, if you're talking to somebody like that, then by their own admission, no evidence in the world, no reasoning in the world is ever going to make them follow Jesus. It's never going to make them become a Christian. So, and this may sound harsh, don't waste your time. It's, for such people like this, really all you can do is share the gospel with them, which of course they probably already heard, and pray for them because you cannot move them into uh, wanting to follow it. You don't have the power to do so. There's plenty of people out there in the world who are honestly seeking truth, who would become Christians, skeptics, atheists, who would become Christians, but they just simply don't believe because they don't think there's enough evidence or good reasoning. And if you can provide that evidence of good reasoning, it might move them closer to faith. So, Sort them out, and you can sort them out with one simple question. If it were, if you, if you came to believe that it was actually true, would you become a Christian? If the answer is yes, 
then okay, we've got something to work with. The answer is no. As far as I can tell, we have nothing to work with. My third tip for talking with skeptics is to ask more questions. We almost always, especially in the realm of apologetics, want to go on the defense. It's kind of what the word means, and that's what we often do. Somebody objects, and we immediately start rambling off facts and things like that. But I think a good tip, and I just had a conversation with Greg Kokel, who you may know, and if you haven't, you should go watch the episode with him uh, that we did on the podcast on the YouTube channel in which Greg talks about how he asks two main questions, and he has had a very effective ministry um, talking with skeptics and people like that uh, just by asking two simple questions or a variation of the two same questions. And the first question that he likes to ask is, what do you mean by that? And in our conversation, I've pointed out this is really good because what I find, especially in political dialogues, that people are often talking past each other because they have not defined their terms. And so I use the... um, the abortion debate, as an example, um, we, we aren't in agreement on what the definition of the word fetus means. When one side talks about fetus, they mean a clump of cells. When the other side talks about fetus, they mean an innocent, living human being. And so, obviously, we're going to talk right past each other until we settle that score first. And so, f- whenever people object to you, it's always a good question to say, to pick some word, it, the, the important word in their, their objection, say, well, what do you mean by X, Y, or Z? And have them define their terms. Because you may not agree with that definition, or they may not agree with your definition, definition, and you can't really go anywhere until you settle that score. The second question is, how do you know that? So we've said, what do you mean by that? Okay, they've defined their terms. Maybe you, let's say you agree with it. And then the second question is, well, how do you know that that's the case? How do you know that that's what that is? And here, what we're asking for is evidence and reason. Now we've shifted the conversation and put the onus back on the objector. Okay, um, Let's say they say, well, we, we know that the, the Bible is riddle, riddled with contradictions. Okay, what do you mean by contradiction? All right, we've got to get that first because a difference is not necessarily a contradiction. I repeat, a difference between the Gospels is not necessarily a contradiction. All right, and then once we get that term defined, then we can say, well, how do you know that the Bible is riddled with contradictions? Here, we're looking for examples. See, we've got to get more precise with our questions. The objection was, the Bible is riddled with contradictions. What do you mean by contradiction? How do you know there's contradictions? Which contradictions? Can you point them out to me? I did this recently in my blog post. I, I don't normally engage with comments. Commenters in, in the blog, it's usually not a good idea. It didn't turn into a good idea here, but I did. I said, this was the exact objection that the skeptic brought to the table. And I said, okay, could you send me a list of the objections? I'd like to to research them. And their response was, oh, yeah, by research them, you mean you've already got prepared answers for them, blah, 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 blah. That's, that's not an answer. That's just uh, foolishness. I don't know. It wasn't worth engaging with after all. But the question, the question just immediately erased the objection altogether. I said, okay, which contradictions? And that was the end of the conversation because this person obviously wasn't going to share with me what the objections were. And if you're not going to show your work, then your objection is no good. Now, there's plenty of people who will, who do know what where some um, contradictions are in the Gospels or apparent contradictions in the Gospels are. But the point here is just to ask the right questions. What do you mean by that? How do you know that? Number four, I would say don't get sidetracked. It's not uncommon to be asked questions by skeptics like, do you really think God flooded the earth and Noah survived on a boat? Or aren't there numerous errors and contradictions in the Bible? And of course, everyone's favorite, what about the dinosaurs? Okay, here's the thought. 
Who cares? What do the majority of these silly questions have to do with anything? They're, they're really just red herrings that are distracting us from what actually matters. So what actually matters when talking with a skeptic? Okay, when talking with an atheist, a skeptic, um, you're talking about someone who does not believe in God and does not believe in Jesus, which just so happen to be the two biggest, most important things um, for Christianity. If God exists and Jesus rose from the dead, then it follows that he is Lord and we should put our faith in him. Um, people may try to object to that right there, but... Those are the two biggest tenets of Christianity. God exists and Jesus rose from the dead. Paul himself said if, Paul, if Jesus did not rise from the dead, then you know we're all um, fools, whatever. Christianity is false. So the two biggest things are, does God exist and did Jesus rise from the dead? If you can defend those things, you're ready to deal with skeptics, okay? And anything else is really just peripheral or secondary and doesn't really matter, okay? There's contradictions in the Bible. Does that mean that God doesn't exist? Of course not. The Bible could be completely false and God could still exist. So we haven't gotten anywhere there. Um, there's contradictions in the Bible. Does that mean Jesus did not rise from the dead? Of course not. There could be contradictions in the Bible and Jesus could still rise from the dead. So don't get distracted from what actually matters. And there's, you know, plenty of other things you could come up with. Well, you really think Noah and the ark and all that and, and Moses and parting the sea and things like that. Uh, Adam and Eve, really talking serpents, things like that. Okay, let's say all that's just metaphor and it's false. Or let's just say they even meant it as true and it's false. Okay. Okay, now where are we? Does that mean God doesn't exist? No. Does that mean Jesus didn't rise from the dead? No. So why are we talking about this? You're a skeptic. You're an atheist. Let's deal with the first things first. Don't get distracted. And number five, my last tip, of course, is be humble. The last thing we need in the world is another pretentious know-it-all Christian apologist. There's plenty to go around. There are a dime a dozen. We don't need any more. Uh, what we need are people who are uh, going out there, sharing the gospel, defending the gospel in love and in truth. We're not going to waver. We're not going to, you know, back down or, uh, you know, pander or whatever, but we, we are going to be gracious. We are going to be loving. We're not going to call names. We're not going to uh, participate in ad hominem attacks and things like that, attacking someone's character as opposed to the argument. This is why I like the written debate so much more than I do live debates and debates where people are actually speaking and things like that because it, much can be lost in rhetoric um, that um, really matters and, 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 and people can use rhetoric to win a debate or a conversation or whatever even though what they're saying doesn't actually matter or isn't actually true or something like that but they get away with it because well it, it, it's live it's hard to think on your feet it's hard to catch out catch every little mistake that your opponent is making when you're in the live debate especially when it's audible and um, speaking as opposed to writing where you can take your time and look at things like that that's why whenever I read it or hear a debate or hear a talk or something like that I like to look at the transcript so I can really see the uh, logic of their argument and things like that and check them on what they were saying so um, anyway, so so be humble. Don't participate in ad hominems and, and things like that. And um, re remember that we're we're here to share a message of grace and truth and love. And so there's no need for all the ad hominems and things like that. So be humble. And remember, we don't need another pretentious know-it-all apologist out there. Well, that's it for today. Thanks so much for joining me. If you enjoyed the episode, be sure to hit the like button, subscribe, leave us a review, and of course, uh, head on over to the Patreon page and become a supporter so we can continue to produce free material that defends and spreads the truth of Christianity. My name's Hayden Clark, and this has helped me believe.